in eternity past, when nothing had been created, nothing has, had uh, existed other than the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect community and perfect unity, needing nothing, living in perfect fellowship with one another, but wanting and desiring something else that they could share their love and their glory with. And so in eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit decided that they would create all that we see before us. They decided that they wanted to show all the world, all the universe, who they were, what their heart was like, their love, their compassion, their generosity. And so they spoke the world into existence. And wanting to establish a relationship with their creation, especially with those that were created in their image, they wanted to enter into a relationship and share their glory, reveal who they were. But unfortunately, as many of us know, that story did not turn out as, as great as we would have hoped. Instead of trusting in God who had provided everything, who looked at everything and said it was good and said that it was plentiful and for us to enjoy it and, and to, to uh, subdue it and continue spreading that goodness all throughout creation, instead we, we lack the trust in who God was. We can read in Genesis 3 where... Uh, uh, Adam and Eve were tempted to think that God was withholding something back from them, that he was not giving them all the goodness that there was. And so living in that distrust, they reached out, they took the fruit and ate it, and in, in that instant, fear entered into the world. And from that point forward, God has been trying to get his uh, creation to begin to trust him, to to believe that he is for them and not against them, that he is wanting to bless them, that, he is the, that his story is the right story, that, that if they would just trust him, if they would just follow him, then they could restore creation back to what it once was. And he looked all throughout creation, he looked all throughout human history, and he decided, I'm going to pick one family. And through this one family, I'm going to work through them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to speak to them. I'm going to uh, fellowship with them. And through this family, I'm going to bless all families and all nations. And he gave his law. An illustration of what his heart was like, of what was good and what was right and what was moral. And he said, if they would just follow this, then they could bless all nations. Unfortunately, they, like many of us, got to the place where they didn't trust God. They didn't trust his word. They didn't trust who he was, that he was good, that he would provide, that he would bless. And they began to be like all the other nations around them. They began to build up their own empire, and they began to uh, oppress the poor and the needy and those who were hurting and do the exact opposite of what God had called them to do and to be. But God didn't give up on them, and he didn't give up on us, and so he continued to move and work in our midst and bring all of humanity to the, to the climactic point where he came and stepped into this world to not just tell us who he was, but to show us who God is. Instead of speaking through prophets, he would speak through his one and only son. 
In just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter. We're going to be celebrating the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. But I want us to really make sure we understand what it is that we're celebrating. I want us to understand what it is that God has been doing from the beginning of creation up to this point so that when we celebrate Easter Sunday, we know just how powerful this story is, how powerful God is as he moves and works throughout human history to redeem those who have fallen away, who have decided not to trust God. And so as we begin looking into the last few days of Jesus' life here on this earth, I want you to understand that basically our, we have to decide between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God brings peace, trust, joy, love. We understand that God is for us, that he will bless us, and so because we don't have to worry about, what, uh, about, about our needs and our wants, because we know a Heavenly Father will provide for us, we can pour out our lives before other people and be generous and gracious. Or we can trust the kingdom of this world, a kingdom that tells us that there's not enough resources to go around. There's not enough uh, uh, good people out there, and you have to protect yourself. You have to build up walls. You have to hoard your stuff because you don't know what the future might hold. And I'm going to encourage and plead with you to trust that God is good, that he is watching out for you, that he loves you, and his provisions are always timely and sufficient for our needs. And so I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, we begin with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem for what will be the Passover, the last Passover he will ever take part in. And we start in verse 1, and this is what the Gospel of Matthew tells us. He says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage of the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Jesus has been going out throughout the regions of Galilee and all throughout uh, the, the northern region of Israel, ministering, blessing, preaching the good news that the kingdom of God has come, that God has been working in and through them. And now as he is coming to the, the end of his uh, earthly ministry, he's traveling from the northern region of Israel down into Jerusalem. And the interesting thing at this, this point, this Passover meal would have seen Hordes of people coming into Jerusalem to worship with him, this Passover meal. The interesting thing is that during this time, as Jesus is coming in, he's coming in through, uh, to the east of Jerusalem. You'll see a map here. That green line is, pro is the most likely path that Jesus would have been coming from, uh, from as he comes down uh, from the uh, Galilee, uh, Galilee region down through. He, uh, scripture tells us that he passes through Jericho into the east of Jerusalem. The interesting thing at this time is Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, that God loves his people, that he wants them to trust his, his plan for them, the redemption of all mankind. There is another kingdom that is also on the, on the rise during this time, and that's the kingdom of Rome. And this kingdom has been oppressing and pushing down Israel for generations. It started with 
with Julius Caesar as he came on the scene and he uh, subjugated most of the known world at that time. He put on the throne uh, Herod the Great, you know him, as the Herod during the uh, birth of Jesus that slaughtered the, the infants there in Bethlehem. He also, after he died, he passed on his uh, kingdom to three of his sons, one of which ended up dying fairly uh, soon after he arose to the throne. Rome placed on, the, uh, on the, the governor's seat there to rule over that region a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Pilate was a bulldog of a man. He was very shrewd, very brutal, and he was there to make sure that this unruly nation would stay in line with Rome. Caesar, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Pilate uh, would often stay in Caesarea by the sea. And he would prefer to stay there just because it felt more like home to him instead of some of the other more uh, uh, run-down, more backwoods area of, of Israel at the time. But every so often when there was a big festival like Passover, Pilate would come down from Caesarea and he would come in with all his pomp and all of his circumstance, riding a white stallion with trumpeters and the big parade showing his military might and the power of Rome. And most, often, and most likely he would come down that red line that you see there coming from the sea. And when I, when I think about what this may have looked like, here you have two kingdoms that are about to collide. You have the kingdom of God, through Jesus Christ, preaching peace, preaching forgiveness, preaching love, your enemies. And then you have Pilate coming in from the west, the power of Rome, squashing anyone who got in his way. I wonder sometimes if they came in at the exact same time. Here, Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey in humility. Not with all the pomp and circumstance that Pilate would have brought, but lowly as a shepherd. I want you to notice what happens here. It says, all this was done. Matthew says that this idea of Jesus coming in on a donkey, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl, uh, the fowl of a donkey. Matthew, he's thinking of this this scene that he sees unfolding before him, the scene of his rabbi, of his Messiah, riding in on a donkey, and immediately his mind goes to Zechariah. That prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 where it talks about uh, the Messiah and his coming into Israel uh, on, on a donkey, on, on the, the kid, the fowl of a donkey, to bring peace to all of Israel. And in fact, if you look at the prophecy of Zechariah, you'll see in context more significance in this prophecy than sometimes we would readily acknowledge. Notice what it says here in Zechariah 9. Start, let's jump back to verse 8 in Zechariah chapter 9. It says this, I will camp around my house. This is God speaking to Israel through his prophet. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I have seen my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the fowl of a donkey. 
And Zechariah's prophecy there in uh, verses 8, and even if you go back further than that, what the whole prophecy of Zechariah is pointing to and what Jesus is fulfilling there that Matthew is looking at is that God will one day bring about a, a period of peace in Israel where Israel's enemies are done away with, they are removed, they are no longer oppressing God's people. And Jesus, knowing this prophecy, sets up the donkey for him to ride in, showing his disciples and signaling to all of Israel this prophecy is being fulfilled. Now, if you know anything about the people of Israel, you know that they hated the Romans. You know that they hated all those who had been uh, oppressing them all the way back to Assyria and Babylon and Persia over and over and over again. Other pagan nations were coming in and and subjecting them and, and ruling over them. And Israel was tired of it. They wanted to be free. They wanted to no longer uh, see these, uh, uh, um, these pagans, these godless nations ruling over God's people, trampling over God's uh, holy court. They were longing for this day. And Jesus comes in on a donkey signaling that the prophecy is coming, that God's anointed one is coming forth. But unfortunately, most of Israel was thinking that God would vanquish their enemy, that when this Messiah came in on a donkey, that they would be vanquished with a sword. But what we need to understand, what they miss, and so often we miss as well, is that God isn't here to vanquish our enemies with a sword. He isn't here to push back the ungodly nations uh, away from us and keep them at bay, but he's going to do away with with our enemies by making them a part of our family. Then instead of bringing bloodshed and more war, and more hurt and pain. He's coming to bring peace and healing. He's not wanting to establish a nation. He's wanting to establish a family. He's wanting not to just change who's on the throne. He's wanting to change what's going on in our hearts. He's not wanting to get rid of the Romans. He's wanting to transform the Romans. And I think that that's a timely word for us here today because so often we can look around at the world around us and we can see people that maybe we wouldn't call them enemies, but we would say they are completely opposed to the things that we think need to be happening. They're maybe of a different political party or a different religion or a different worldview, whatever they may be, and we can't wait for God to come back and smite all those who are not in line with God's will. But I wonder if we have gotten off track just like Israel had gotten off track. And where, we were look, and where we sometimes are looking for God to vanquish our enemies, maybe God is calling us to do what Jesus did and preach peace and preach the gospel to our enemies and watch their hearts transformed and come in line with the kingdom of God. Notice what happens next. It says, So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and then set him on them, and a very great multitude spread their coats or clothes on the road. Others cut down palm branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then a multitude went out before those and, uh, and followed and cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Praising God. 
that word Hosanna is a, is a tricky word. It can, uh, most translators believe it means something to the equivalent of deliver us or save us. Imagine the scene of Jesus coming in lowly and humble on a donkey and a crowd of people gathered around him shouting and, 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 and giving praise to God and saying, save us, save us. Now, in their minds, they're probably thinking, save us. Save us from the Romans. Save us from our oppressors. Save us from those who have, who have abused us and trampled over us. But the greater truth that, of what Jesus was wanting to do was save them from their sins. Save them from themselves. Save them from that worldview of distrusting God and trying to go their own way and believe in God's plan of redemption. He's quoting, again, from a, a very... Uh, popular psalm for Israel, Psalm 118, a psalm of ascent. This was a song that they would sing throughout their festivals as they would go uh, to the, uh, the festival of Booths when they would go to the Passover meals. These are some of the songs they would sing, and this is a popular song that they would sing over and over and over again. And it's, it's a beautiful song of the, the providence of God, the rescuing of God for his people. And I would just like to read you a few verses from that psalm. And I want you to just hear the, uh, the, the truths in there that the people of Israel were missing because they were so focused on what their kingdom would look like rather than what God's kingdom would look like. If you look in Psalm 118, starting just before this, these verses that they're singing and praising, it says this in uh, verse 22 of Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This was the song that they were singing. This was a song that they would sing over and over and over again. And I just find it so ironic that here as the, the chief cornerstone came in, the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected comes riding into Israel. They sing a song about him. They're singing songs of praise to God, of deliverance, of being rescued from their enemies. They're praising God and blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet they're still going to in just a few days reject him. And why were they going to do it? Because as much as they wanted a Messiah, they didn't want this kind of Messiah. They wanted a Messiah much more like David, a general, a, a warrior who would march in and, and destroy their enemies. Instead, this was a Messiah who was going to come in and preach to forgive their enemies, to love their enemies, to lay down their life for their enemies. And that's not the gospel they wanted. That's not the Messiah they wanted. So I want to ask you a question. I don't want you to answer this out loud, but I want you to, in your own hearts, think through this. What kind of Jesus do you want? Do you, what kind of Jesus do you want? Do you want a Jesus that solves all your problems? That smooths out the, the, your, your, the path of life for you? That takes away your financial difficulties, your marriage difficulties? That makes uh, your life better and easier? Or do you want a Jesus that calls you to something that is beyond you. A Jesus that calls you to a task and to a calling and to, to a purpose that you can't do by yourself. A calling that is a God-sized task that through him, you, as you partner with God, you transform the world around you. 
but it's going to require that you lay down your life, pick up your cross, and follow him. You know, we talk about the cross, and we, we have necklaces of the cross, and we have crosses that look beautiful, and I'm, I'm not taking anything away from it. But sometimes I wonder, have we forgotten exactly what the cross means and what it means, what it meant back then and what it means to us today? The cross is a form of the most horrific execution, the most degrading form of punishment. It wasn't just to kill someone, it was to shame them, to publicly, publicly humiliate them. It was a, a form of death for the worst of the worst. It was a thing that was meant to terrify anyone and everyone who saw it so that they would never do the same crime or the same act that this person had done. They would be stripped down. They would be beaten, tortured, mocked, ridiculed, and then nailed to a cross where they would stay there sometimes hours, sometimes days, in the scorching sun for all to see. And Jesus is saying, this is what you're called to be. This is what you're called to not only be, but to embrace. There was a story that I heard um, a while back, it was uh, about a tribe in Africa that had converted to Christianity and they uh, were being uh, constantly and consistently being persecuted by, by some of the other warring tribes and religions in that area. And unfortunately, one of the horrific things in that area that would be done during these, these tribal battles and during this, this war, this persecution upon Christianity, is that oftentimes they would uh, target the most helpless and the most vulnerable in those tribes to, again, scare and intimidate the people to abandon Christianity and abandon the gospel. One particular instance of this, uh, the, the warring tribe, the one that was trying to snuff out the gospel, brought all the various children from a, a village that had accepted Christ. They lined them up, and there before the children were crosses all lined up. They said that if they loved Jesus enough, they loved this crucified Savior enough, then they could join him on the cross. And they said, you can avoid this if you renounce your faith, but if you're going to choose Jesus, you're going on a cross. And there, one of the youngest children there in that village looked around and he asked one of, the other, um, one, of the, one of his persecutors which cross was his. And there, when he, it was indicated one of the crosses, he went and he embraced the cross. Again, I can't even imagine what that would be like, but to get to the place where you love Jesus enough and where you trust God enough, to where you don't just accept persecution, but you embrace it. You're, you feel unworthy to be counted among one of those who suffer for the gospel and for Jesus. We in our time and in our culture, we have never experienced persecution and suffering like that. But I wonder, if that were ever to happen, would we choose to trust God, or we would, would we trust the kingdom of this world? Would we trust that God's plan is the best, or we, would we in fear preserve our own peace, our own security, or our own wisdom, and hide with those of this world? Jesus is calling us to trust him. Knowing what that has in store for us, are you willing to trust Jesus, to follow him, even to the cross?
I want you to notice what else it says here. As this crowd is gathering around him, we see in Matthew here that he's surrounded by these people who are shouting this Psalm 118 to him, praising him. But I want you to take a look at how Jesus looked at this crowd and what he thought of it. You'll see this in Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn your Bibles there, you can. It will be up here on the screen as well. But in Luke chapter 19, describing this very same scene, this is what Luke said. Now as he drew near, he, talking about Jesus, saw the city and all those who were gathered with him and wept over it. Imagine that for a moment. Here Jesus is. He's been calling for people to to recognize God in their midst, to recognize what God is up to and how God is working. He is the Messiah. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the one who is going to take away the sins of the world. And here they are praising him as the son of David, praising him as the one who's come to rescue him. That is exactly what his purpose was. But when he saw it, he saw deep down into their hearts what they were really looking for. And it broke his heart. And he wept. And he cried. Now why was he weeping? Notice what Luke goes on to say next in verse 42. Saying, if you had known, talking about Israel and the people gathered around, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build an embarkment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And you will, not, uh, you will not leave, and will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is he saying there? Jesus is looking out at the crowd that are laying palm branches before him, shouting, Hosanna, save us, calling him son of David, and he breaks down and he cries because he understands they don't get it yet. That even though they see him as Messiah, they don't understand what that really means. That they are still very much in that mindset of the kingdom of this world. They are expecting Jesus to come in and to begin waging war with Rome. We wonder sometimes why they're laying palm branches down. I wonder if that's not even a sign of their uh, rebellion, a kind of sign to Rome, because many of the zealots, those who would wage war with Rome, those who were, in in many ways, the terrorists of the day who were trying to fight against Rome and, and, uh, and, and battle, one of them even killed a high priest in the temple because they saw him corrupt and, and, and siding with Rome. These zealots, their sign was the palm branch. Later on in biblical history, Rome saw it so much that the palm branches, a sign of the zealots, that they outlawed anyone even holding and waving palm branches because it was a sign of zealots. And I wonder if them laying down those palm branches for Jesus was kind of a subtle way of saying that they saw him as a zealot, saw him as a military leader coming in, and Jesus, his heart breaks. And he says, you don't understand what's going on here. It's hidden from your sight. He says, God is moving in your midst and you're missing it. And when I read that and when I think through that, I wonder if God were to move in our midst here today, would we see it? Would we be on board with it or would we miss it? 
Would we be so focused on what's going on in our life, in our agenda, in our kingdom that we're building, that we miss out on the amazing work that God is doing? Because I'll tell you, I'm convinced that God has been working, has been moving, is working and moving right now, and will continue working and moving in the world. He is steadily moving all of human history according to his plan. And we can either open our eyes and we can see it and we can partner with him in our prayers and in our actions as we love one another, as he has loved us, as we extend the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ to others, or we can miss it because we're looking for something else or someone else. The question is, whose kingdom are we looking for? I see this as a clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. A kingdom of tr distrust, of fear, of oppression, of hoarding what I want and what I need, even though it means others go without, or a kingdom of God where I pour my life out for others. So my question to you today, what kingdom are you pursuing? What kingdom are you looking for? Do you trust that your heavenly Father sees you, he loves you, and he is moving on your behalf? That he wants you to take all the blessings he poured into your life and pour those into the lives of others? And you may be wondering, well, how am I to do that? There are so many things that I need to take care of. There's my family I gotta take care of. There's time responsibilities I have elsewhere. How can I do these things? Listen, that's the heart of someone who is still hoarding the blessings of God for themselves. But God says, you let me worry about that. You pour yourself out, you lay your life down, and I'll take care of your needs. I'll take care of you as you just step out to what I've called you to. I don't know what that looks like in your life. I'm doing good just trying to find out what that looks like out in my life. But as we listen to that still, small voice as God whispers to our heart and to our mind, and we have a heart that is on board with whatever God is doing in our life and in the world around us, I believe God will guide you, God will direct you, and where he has called you, he will equip you to do his work for his glory. That's the Easter story. That God is rescuing us from ourselves that he is calling us to something bigger. And God and Jesus, as he steps on the scene and he shows us what a life like that looks like and then he dies the death that you and I deserve, he has now freed us to pursue that life. He has now empowered us to live that life. And that's what we see in the book of Acts when he then tells his church, I've been given all authority and then I now send you out into the world to tell the rest of the world that there's a new king on the scene. There is now a new king on the throne. It's no longer the king of this world. You have been freed from that kingdom, and now you are, the, you are sons and daughters of the one true and living God. So are you going to pursue his path and his agenda? And it really, in my mind, it all boils down to trust. There was a story um, about a young boy. His name was David. He was diagnosed with leukemia at age two. And because of his, uh, his diagnosis and, and the leukemia that was spreading throughout his body, he was subjected to treatment after treatment after treatment. He would go into clinic tests. He would go in and, and he would uh, be poked and he would be prodded. He would have to uh, sit in, in waiting rooms and just 
while away his time while his friends were, were out doing things that kids should be doing. And what was even more hard, it, it wasn't just that David had to go through all this, but his parents. Sometimes I, I, I think that it's harder on the parents in situations like that than it ever is on the kids. As a parent, you want to take on the hurts and struggles that you see your kids going through. You wish you could take that upon yourself. David's mother went to every appointment. Whenever David would cry, she would be crying as well. And she saw him have to endure something that no kid would have to, uh, need to endure. David went through that for an entire year. And then when he became three years of age, he, he, they said that he, had, he still just has about a 50-50 chance of surviving. And they said, what we need to do now is we need to do a spinal tap. If you're ever familiar with something like that, it's an excruciating procedure, especially for someone as young as three. But there, they talked to David, they pulled him aside, they said, listen, you're going to have to have this procedure done, you're going to have to have this treatment, and it's going to hurt. It's not going to feel good, but listen, David, whenever it begins to feel uncomfortable, whenever you begin feeling that pain, I want you to know that we love you. And we're not doing this because we're angry at you or because anything with you, but this is because we love you and we want what's best for you. So they brought David in that day for his spinal tap. They sat him down. They had to have three nurses hold him down. And as he was crying, the sweat was pouring they did the procedure. And after the screaming was over, after the tears had subsided, what was amazing is David and uh, the testimony that his mother gave, David wipes the sweat from his brow, and then he goes up, hugs the doctor, and says, thank you. Thank you because he knew, he trusted his parents, and he trusted his doctor that what they were doing, as horrible and as tough as it was, was for his good. Why do I share that with you? I share that because God's plan for you is good. God's plan for you is because he loves you and he's calling you to something amazing. But it's not going to be easy. There's going to be pain. There's going to be tears. It's going to be hard. There are going to be times where you don't want to be going through it. You want to throw in the, the towel and you want to be done with it. But I'm calling you and I'm asking you to trust God. Trust that even in the darkest moments and the most painful moments, it's for your good. He loves you. Hold in there and keep your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith, Jesus Christ. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. This is a time where you you go to the throne of your heavenly father. You listen to what he's speaking to you and you just trust him and be obedient to whatever that may be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Wonderful heavenly father. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for the gospel story. Father, I look forward to Easter Sunday, Lord, where we can celebrate and praise you for the resurrection of your son. Father, I pray that as we gather here, Lord, and we look at this, the collision of these two kingdoms, Lord, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God, Father, I pray that we would all choose your kingdom, Lord, your will, Lord, that we would trust in you. Father, if there's anyone here who's not trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart now. And Lord, that they would 
follow you today. Lord, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord, who have gotten distracted with the things of this world, Lord, I pray that they would remember and, and realize, Lord, how passing all this is. Lord, but you are forever. And Lord, I pray that you would just be glorified in our midst here today. And we ask this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.